Welcome, everybody, to the 3F Podcast. As always, your host, TJ Clayton Cornell, with his co-host, Jeff Sleek Chest McGean. What's up, everybody? And today we have a very special and very educated guest, James Johnson. How are you doing, doctor? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on, guys. So before we get deep, I almost forgot last episode. Is anyone drinking anything fun? during today's episode jeff you got anything i'm always drinking something fun um except for today i'm drinking just plano h2o i gotta gotta finish my jug for 75 hard man still on that grind gotcha well i am on just zevia the standard cola in water i'm uh, not on 75 hard right now james you drinking anything besides water i always go for those like the cheapo like big leader dudes that seltzer water stuff <laughs> the the walmart brand flavor yeah 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 it's what gets me through prep because it's the only thing with flavor you know yeah even so. uh four four or five years ago when i did my one show that that is what uh, got me through those late nights come home and the only food i had was spinach and chicken at the end of the day i was like i need something with sweetness and uh it was the key lime one was everyone that i had every night yeah but well, we got some diversity in the drinks today. So, you know, let's get let's move forward. James, why don't you introduce yourself a little bit? Yeah, yeah. Um, so you introduced me as doctor. You're probably one of like three people that have ever, you know, used that title. But yeah, so doctor of physical therapy, that's like the main gig if you want to consider it that. But then also uh, strength coach with ATP Performance, which is a like online virtual remote coaching company that I started um, while I was in grad school, actually. So a little bit of a, like a hybrid coach therapist. Um, and then I've actually done, you know, right now I'm actually working as an assistant strength coach for the high school, which is actually pretty fun. Gets to, you know, I get to give back a little bit for all the stuff I've learned. Yeah. So, um, well, one, uh, as many times as I've been to a physical therapist being in the gym and as an athlete, uh, whenever I saw a physical therapist who didn't work out or didn't look like they did any type of physical activity, I'm not going to take their word that much. So the fact that, uh, you know, you have all this history and, you know, can you tell us a little bit about what you did as an athlete? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, I did a lot of sports in, at the high school age uh, or up until the high school age, I was trying just about anything. And I think I've really done most major sports, but the ones that I really stuck with, uh, the big one was soccer. I played college soccer all four years. I was a goalie. So I was the soccer player that didn't want to run. Um, but yeah, yeah, that was, that was my main sport. And then as you guys know, uh, by the time I graduated, I still wanted to be somewhat of an athlete, got into bodybuilding and, you know, just general fitness in the gym, uh, and then stumbled across rugby as well. Not doing it right now, just cause I have zero time for it, but, uh, that's, that would be the sport probably that I'd go back to right now. If I were going to go to a traditional sport. Damn good rugby player too, man. <laughs> Damn good. Rugby. Appreciate it. Even when you get dropped. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, Dropped, so nose broken. It's a part of the sport. Yeah. So, you know, you talked about your mm -hmm. undergrad and your grad because you have your doctorate. Where where did you get those those degrees and what were they in uh, for your undergrad? Yeah. 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 So undergrad for physical therapy, you have a lot of different options, actually. Uh, the traditional option, which is what I did, is you get a biology degree. So I got a biology degree from Juniata College, which is a D3 school in central PA. There's like 1600 students. So not too many people, but I wasn't far from home. Um, and I had the opportunity to play soccer there, you know, cause I was 
good enough athlete to play D3, but I wasn't going D1, D2, so I wasn't <laughs> even really considering those. So I was looking for like the academic side of things. So I did that. Um, I said that's like the traditional route because then I had to then reapply for grad school after those four years to get into the grad programs where there are some programs that I was accepted to early on where you kind of combine everything. So it's like a three, three year or four, one, four, two. So you're accepted as an undergraduate and you go right on through into the grad program. So long as you keep it a certain degree, but it's pretty unlikely that you'd be able to play college athletics. If you do that route, just because the workload is so much more condensed. So I said, I'll risk it. I know I'm a good enough student and I'll make it in, which almost bit me. Yeah, it was, it was tough. Um, so yeah, after those four years at Juniata, I went to upstate medical university in Syracuse and did the three years of grad school, graduated, and then jumped around for a little bit, but yeah, still practicing, you know, full-time in the clinic as well as what I do on the side. Gotcha. And you know, I already said you're a, an assistant strength training coach. Do you have any other training outside of your doctorate? Not that you need much more outside of a doctorate degree, uh, but any other, you know, individualized trainings? Yeah. Yeah. So I technically hold a certificate from Nesta, which is one of like the really, really small accrediting bodies. I got that one. It's like a physique and figure training specialist, just because I was looking for more information on bodybuilding itself. And obviously there's not too many certificates for bodybuilding because it's such a niche, um, but it's more like hypertrophy science and things like that. Um, and then a lot of it has just been learning on my own. Um, the nutritional side of things I've learned on my own. Um, even more of the training stuff I've kind of picked up, but I did study for the CSCS multiple different times. And I feel that I could you know, very easily pass it if I wanted to, but at this point, you know, I've kind of established myself with the niche that I want. I have the doctorates. So I don't necessarily need the other certificates to train people or coach people. So I've just kind of held off on it. Um, I did, however, go on in this last year and get a, a board certification in orthopedics for physical therapy. So I guess the title is now PT, DPT, OCS. So orthopedic certified specialist. Just the alphabet. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, that sounds like quite a lot of reasons why we should listen to you when it comes to uh, taking care of the body. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So with that, you know, let's get into some training stuff. What are like some of your main training ideology as, as a normal gym goer? What's your, like your views on mm -hmm. like splits, time under tension, things like mm -hmm. that? Mm -hmm. uh, you're probably not going to expect this answer, but I feel like in especially like the social media realm, there is way too many people that want to over specialize and like create their own niche and, and like do all these complex, fancy things when they haven't built their foundation first. So I'm very much a minimalist with a lot of the general population. I feel like everyone should learn how to use a barbell and a dumbbell very you know, efficiently before they move on to any of these other complex schemes. Um, and, and really, if you look at the population statistics across the U.S., I'm just a fan of people moving because not enough people are doing it, right? Like we have an obesity epidemic for sure. So I'm not going to discourage anybody from doing whatever they want to do fitness related. I'm just going to help teach them maybe a safer way to do it. If I find that they're maybe not 
right? So obviously I have biases with strength training, powerlifting, bodybuilding. That's what I love to do, but I'll coach people across the spectrum. I've got, you know, 70 year old guy had a knee replacement, wants to play pickleball and he needs to lose weight or, you know, and he, you know, cause after that surgery, you're not at your regular fitness level. And that's a lot of the people that I train right now beyond my bodybuilders are those people with chronic injuries or previous injuries that just can't get to that level to be athletic again. And in my opinion, everybody's an athlete, right? If you have any goal of movement, I'm going to consider you an athlete, you know, the grandfather who wants to go hit nine holes, you're an athlete, you know, you, you have a very specific target in mind. So it's, it's really just about convincing people to move and finding a way that they enjoy it because they need to be sustainable with it. You know, anybody can do some like crazy over the top, like dig yourself a grave type workout, but can you do that for years on end to maintain your health? Probably not. Yeah. Not everyone needs that, uh, 17 resistance bands tied to their legs, shoulders, and arms while they're trying to do a spinning kick for no reason at all. If they're not, if you're not trying to be an MMA fighter, you don't need that weird, you know, that weird motion. Um, Mm -hmm. and, uh, I do want to just pull this up. This reminds me, I think you're the one who shared this video to me of the, the grandfather who was just picking a kettlebell up every day and just trying to Mm -hmm. extend it. Uh, and mm-hmm. the only purpose was so he could pick his granddaughter up to put a star on the Christmas tree, which talk about a reason to cry for, for not expecting it while on Instagram. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, you yeah. know, those, those kind of co- things you wouldn't expect people to want to be coached for, you know, that's, that's what they're coming to you for. They want to play nine holes. They want to pick their grandkids up. Um, so for like yeah. your, your, your normal, eight, you know, 15 to 40 year old gym goer, do you have a split that you like to go towards for the average person? Yeah. Yeah. So I like, I feel like four days is very sustainable. So we know within a four day split, you have a couple different options. Probably the, my favorite to go to, if there are more, uh, you know, bodybuilding, fitness, muscle aesthetic type goal, it would be just the classic upper lower split. You get two times frequency for all muscle groups. Those sessions aren't <clears throat> so drawn out where they're going to be super, super long, um, especially with the way that I program, you know, use a lot of supersets for the accessories, heavy barbell work for the main movements, um, and it keeps it pretty clean, right? Um, there are other individuals where I'll do, I think my probably my second favorite of a four day would be PPL, push pull legs with a full day as the fourth day. And I'll kind of split those. So I'll do the full day as more of a barbell movement day. That's your heavy lifts. That's your strength building. Um, and then obviously we'll sprinkle in, splink, geez, can I say that word? Sprinkle in some accessory work or maybe some aerobic capacity work, like hit style training towards the end of that day, if they have those goals. And then you'll do your classic like bodybuilding style push pull legs of the higher rep, uh, lower intensity relatively. So like hypertrophy focused stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I do that, you know, like the, the air quotes, like power building, right? Like that kind of got like really popular. And then especially in my realm got unpopular. Everyone wanted to be like super specific with hypertrophy. I still feel like there's a, a benefit to strength training across the board for any individual. It might just be, you might you know, like a bodybuilder doesn't need to hit singles, but you know, reps three to five, you can still get hypertrophy there. They're a little bit more taxing, but I feel like there's still a structural benefit to that. Gotcha. And that's the splits that you were focusing on for a while, right, Jeff, that upper, lower, upper, lower in the PPL. Yeah. Uh, so maybe the way I was doing it was kind of extreme and James, you could tell me, but I had a um, push pull legs, but I basically had an upper, upper split. And then I had a basically chest, shoulder, triceps, split back, 
rear delts, lower back, and then I had my legs and I would repeat that twice a week. Um, one, one half would be hypertrophy and the other mm-hmm. half would be heavy. I'd obviously start off with the heavy weights, low reps first, and then end the week with hypertrophy. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I mean, you can give me your opinion on that. Cause that's what I've been sticking to. I've seen the most results on that might be a little bit excessive because I don't give myself a lot of rest time. Um, mm-hmm. but what are your opinions on that? I've done, I've done it for sure. Um, with the individual that wants that much frequency in the gym. Absolutely. Um, I, and again, it depends on how you want to program it, but with that many days in the gym, you can almost kind of get a little bit compact with your training, right? So it's not these two hour long sessions. You can get in, be really, really intense with it and then get out and recover. So that's where you don't on paper have as much recovery because you're in the gym more, but those sessions are so much more focused where it's not all this extra volume, which is just taxing your CNS and taxing those, you know, supportive structures and things like that. So yeah, I've used it. There's, you probably couldn't name a training split that I haven't tried at least once. And that's how I like to do it because I don't want to throw something at a client potentially that I haven't personally felt to know what like the recovery capabilities are. Right. That I, I started to realize how, how taxing it can be when you're doing those full super intense splits six days a week. So just like you said, I started to make it real focused. Um, definitely less, less intensity towards the weekend. And basically my first half is like an hour, hour and a half workout. Second half, I'm like at 45 minutes to an hour max with the weights. Um, super focused. Um, Mm -hmm. yeah, man, super cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Now, when someone's doing those extreme, not extreme, but those really heavy six day a week programs, PPL, PPL, um, how do you think they need to approach some of the their food and sleep, because obviously you talked about taxing their CNS system, um, you know, putting a lot of load on their body. How would you approach it in a quick, like, you know, overview on their, their sleep and their, their diet? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, recovery is underplayed for sure. And I think that's what most of the literature is telling us now. So I'm going on a little bit of a tangent here, but I think it'll loop back and make sense. Right. So sleep is this big factor that everyone's studying right now, right? So you look at studies for bodybuilders going through a competition cut or, you know, anyone going through a significant weight loss phase, the individual that sleeps eight plus hours, which we can summarize on umbrella term as they're recovering well, right? The individual that's recovering well and sleeping more loses, I think it was like 40% less muscle compared to the individual that's sleeping less than that. Mm-hmm. So just with that, that one recovery factor. So we're not looking at nutrition. We're not looking at hydration. You're not looking at stress management. Any of those things It's just purely sleep, which falls under that umbrella. And you're already seeing a significant difference in muscle retention, right? So if you're losing all this weight and it's all your muscle, now you're just spinning your wheels because you're constantly gaining it back through your hard training when you're in a surplus and then you're inefficiently cutting down. So you're just losing it. And then now you're stuck, right? So for competition purposes, not great to lose muscle, but for general aesthetics, athletic capability, all those things, you don't want to be sacrificing all the stuff that you've just done. So sleep is huge. Um, but yeah, the, the hydration, everyone kind of knows at this point, or at least I would hope would know, especially if you're an athlete, like that's hammered in those from day one, like you got to refuel yourself. You got to get the carbs in, you got to get the food in, you got to get the fluids in. It's all part of the same equation there. So yeah, I mean, you can get into the nitty gritty with some of like these stress reduction supplements and looking at like ashwagandha and things like that, which are adaptogens to decrease cortisol. Mm -hmm. Um, But again, you're looking at like a 5% change, 
where the sleep, the hydration, the nutrition, that's your 95. That's what everyone really should be focusing on. Yeah. The, the, the key word is supplement. Everyone forgets mm-hmm. what that word means when it comes to taking something. You know, if, if you're tired or you have a shift issue and you need to take caffeine, you supplement your, you know, some of your energy with caffeine, but the underlying issue is you're not sleeping enough. You're not resting enough. You're not hydrating or eating enough to give your body the energy. Um, so, uh, you know, you can take ashwagandha all you want, or you can take melatonin or pre-workout, but like you said, that's, that's 5% of the 90, uh, the hundred percent workload they need to be doing. Um, now, do you think some simple things like, you know, something I'm a big proponent of is like pink salt and even the baking soda, people have talked about adding it to their water to help with hydration. Do you think those mm-hmm. can help a little bit more in the long run using like your Celtic salt, your kelp salts, things like that? Do you think they can help at mm-hmm. all, with, especially with heavy trainings? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I actually think there was a study that just came out this week saying that salt supplementation was you know, beneficial for body composition and recovery um, in general. Uh, that's obviously one study. So we'd want to see a systematic review or a meta-analysis to like really confirm that. But I think there's enough studies that have come out saying it. There's enough anecdotal evidence if you just look at body physiology, right? Like hydration in general is a, is a balance, right? You need your, you need your salts, you need your minerals, all that stuff, but you need the water. And if you're only kind of supplementing with one or adding one, just pure water, well, then you're missing out on the other equation, right? So the salt is necessary for muscle contractions and, and all sorts of other stuff. Yeah, everyone... Oh, go ahead, TJ. I'll say everyone always looks at me when I pull out the pink shaker at work and I grind salt into my water. So at least I'm glad that there's not just anecdotal evidence. I've only ever seen anecdotal evidence, but now there's an actual study, one study, but that, that can help back my reasoning. So we understand the salt as far as recovery goes and how necessary it is for muscle contraction and all that. So do you think that the salt, if taken pre-workout, uh, let's say about an hour to two hours before a workout, do you think that that has any effect on how your workout's going to end up or does it take a little bit longer? Is it significant? Is it minuscule? I would, so I'm, I'm, this is all from anecdote. I don't have any like study from that. I would say personally. Yeah. Cause that's what I do. I supplement my salt with my pre-workout. I salt all that pre and intra. Um, and it's, it seems to give a better contraction. It seems to give a little bit better, you know, kick to the workout for sure. Right. Okay. So would you recommend salt over creatine? Which one I wouldn't would say there more? necessarily needs to be, I wouldn't say there needs to be a differentiation. Um, I don't think that you're going to go wrong with adding both together. Um, I would say in general, creatine is probably a little bit more widely studied so that we kind of understand its benefits a little bit more. And that's pretty flat across the board that if you take creatine pretty consistently, you can almost expect a, a percentage of strength increase over, you know, six, eight weeks. So, and that's, that's purely from, if you understand like the physiology of, of what's going on there, right. Creatine helps with ATP production. ATP is kicked in for that last like one to three hard reps, right? So if you're consistently getting those extra one to three hard reps, you can imagine your strength is going to go up your, your muscle overall muscle mass is going to go up as well. So little self plug for yourself there and the ATP production is the name of your company is ATP performance. So that nice mm-hmm. little self plug there for the, the creatine. Um, yep. No, so on the topic, you know, you talked about getting some extra hard sets in something I, I really enjoy that you posted this week. Obviously, you're one of the people I follow more than anybody uh, as, you know, even as, a, as an influencer and everything else. Uh, you talked about fun sets. 
you know, can you talk about the fun set when it comes to, you know, your training ideology and everything like that? Yeah. I mean, so yeah, that's something I just posted this other, the other day. And I, I wasn't really filming it for any specific reason. I was just like, Hey, let's, let's see what happens here. Right. So I had just finished up some heavy RDLs and I was too lazy to strip the weight all the way down. And I was like, all right, I'm just going to squat it from the safeties. And when I got underneath it, it was like the deepest, deepest squat you could possibly imagine. I was like maxing my mobility just to get there. And I got it up. I was like, all right, cool. That was like 255. I wonder how much I can do. Right. So obviously you don't want to be programming like all these silly things, but you do have to have fun with it. And that comes back to that sustainability and that longevity. If you're like hating your workout and hating, like if it feels like a battle to go to the gym, right. You're not going to do it. You might be able to like convince yourself and get angry and like motivated for a year or two, but look at the most successful in my niche, the most successful bodybuilders are like 35 years old for natural side, right? Because they've been doing it for years and years and years and years. And they have that muscle density They've honed the ability to lose weight, lose fat without losing the muscle. So for our sport specifically, you got to have a little fun from here and there. And that's where intensity techniques can come in. That comes, you know, challenges can come in. And that's why you see a lot of guys in their off season kind of transition to a little bit of powerlifting because then they can chase some numbers, right? You're still hitting your volume with your accessories. You're still doing the bodybuilding stuff, but you have to have something a little more tangible or a little bit more enjoyable in there as well. And that's the, um, was it Michael Hearn, Michael Hearn philosophy, that power bodybuilding ideal where, you know, you, you're still hitting everything, but you're, you're trying to push some weights with it. Um, actually met him in person once he's an amazing dude. I don't know if anybody else has ever got the honor to meet him. Um, no, no, haven't. So, you know, getting into these warmups, you know, you talked about being an athlete and everything, you know, let's take a look at from your, your physical therapist side, uh, in the gym alone, how do you recommend going into, you know, proper warmups and cool downs when it comes to workouts as whether you're going super intense or not? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'll say I'm probably a minimalist when it comes to this as well. I say a lot of people spend a lot of time doing over the top complex warmups to hit every single possible angle, which may or may not be necessary. I would say some level of dynamic warmup is probably necessary. And I say dynamic specifically over static because the literature shown that a dynamic will help with power production or at least not get the loss of power production that a static stretch would. Um, my philosophy has always been that the warmup should mimic the event that's about to happen. So my dynamic warmup for rugby or for soccer is going to look very, very different than my dynamic warmup for benching, right? My dynamic warmup for benching is I'm going to do really lightweight bench. I'm going to probably add some pauses in to get kind of accustomed to the end range because I want that weight to pull me back into the stretch. And I'm just going to keep ramping up. I don't do, you know, there's been times when I've had some shoulder issues where I've hit some rotator cuff work and things like that before, but that's all situational for me. I don't think that there's a, you know, hard and fast, you absolutely have to do these three exercises before you bench, before you squat, before you, you know, whatever depends on where you're at. I think that you'd be silly to go into a heavy, heavy set without warming up the tissues prior. But if you're doing enough warm up sets to kind of accumulate volume, you've done that yourself already. Big bad. Yeah. So, you know, I like a squat university, obviously, you know, one of the, the probably leading expert as a, you know, physical therapist and coach across the, across Instagram that I've seen, um, you know, when he talks about his squat warmups, he says, get down in the squat before you even touch a barbell. Like you said, mimic everything that you're going to do that day. If I see someone squatting, but I just saw them doing, you know, power skips 
and you know some extreme rugby style or soccer style warm-ups and then all they do is squat all day it almost seems like it could be counterproductive yeah yeah absolutely you need to get the tissues into the in range that you're going to be working them and so how do you feel about athletes who may be doing a little bit of the you know the strength training at the beginning and maybe some dynamic work at the end as well kind of getting that full body but a little maybe muscle focused workouts in yeah 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 again you know it's it's the theory or principle of specificity right it should match what you need to do so my workouts are catered to building muscle if i wanted to sprint faster or be more explosive out of you know a crouch or something i need to do those things so that's where you know your power movements your power cleans sprints, you know, box jumps, all those kind of things come into play. From a basketball player, I need to be good at landing and force absorption. So maybe some depth jumps or altitude jumps and things like that. So very sport specific um, for your actual athlete. The general population, you know, it depends on what you want to do. If you want to go play in a rec league basketball, yeah, you probably still need to train like an athlete. So the first time you go sprint down the court, you don't blow out your hammy. So yeah, it's, it, you know, cater your workouts to what your goals are. Gotcha. And uh, so you talked about bench and uh, you don't really do much rotation. Something that, you know, I just came across was, uh, I know it was a study, I think it was done in the late eighties, early nineties about people that had, were supposed to be able to do 10% of their bench press in an external rotation off their knee. And most people couldn't, obviously, I don't know if you, I can't remember the, the, the doctor who had written the study, but do you feel like, you know, people need to look at what their internal and external rotation is, especially with bench seeing as, that's the most common injury that I know of for gym goers. You know, do you think that that should be included in a warm up for the typical person, even though, you know, you might not do it? I think it, you're not going to hurt yourself by doing that, right? Like you're not going to, there's no negative to doing rotator cuff work. In my opinion, uh, if anything, it increases blood flow to the joint, increases warmth to the joint and increases your proprioception of the joint. Right. So, and what I mean by that is, it's not, you see the terms like, Oh, my, my glutes were off. I got to activate this. I got to activate that. You know, your muscles are always working, but what happens when you work that area is you have a better unconscious awareness of that area. So you kind of know where you are in space a little bit better. And that can kind of save you from some of these form alterations, if you will. Right. So yeah. Yeah. If I, I think it's going to be beneficial if you have the time to do it, I don't think it's absolutely hundred percent necessary though, for someone with healthy, healthy shoulders, um, someone who has chronic shoulder issues. Absolutely. Yeah. You need to be doing something to address it, but yeah. Yeah. Someone who has a uh, chronic shoulder issues is here on the podcast with us. Oh yeah. This guy right here. Yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> speaking, speaking of chronic shoulder issues, I mean, I, they get pretty serious sometimes. So, I mean, with this, I think this would be a good segue into getting into like injury prevention or just addressing injuries in general. Um, so what are one of the, some of the things, some, what is some of the things that you can offer as advice as far as injury prevention goes, let's say you got lower back issues. Let's say you got shoulder impingements or chronic pain. Like I do what, what's some of the advice that you would give as a physical therapist. Mm -hmm. and as yeah. So yeah. Yeah. I'll try and keep it as general as possible, knowing that if individuals have like very specific problems, they can reach out to me and, and just chat with me and we'll go in depth. Um, a lot of injuries either occur because we went too quickly into, you know, sets or movements that we just weren't prepared for with tissue, you know, warmups and stuff like that, or from forcing end range movement 
in mobility that we don't necessarily have or can control, right? So if I have a limitation in, well, I'll use the squat, super easy to kind of pick apart the squat there. If I have a limitation in my ankle mobility that doesn't allow me to let my knee travel forward far enough on one side as compared to the other, you'll either see a rotation, a hip shift, you'll see something because your body's going to try and get the job done and compensate around it, right? So if we're not addressing those mobility limitations and then we're trying to force that end range, it's, it's just not going to end well. You might get away with it for a while, but it's probably not something you want to be doing. So in that you know, assessment, we need to look at every single joint that's involved with the squat. We need to look at the hips, the knees, the ankles, make sure that we have full active range of motion for the mobility that we need for that movement specifically. For the bench, do you have enough external rotation to comfortably get into that scap retracted position and come on down, right? Because if we're not, we're just putting a lot of stress to that joint as is. And then now we're trying to use it to be powerful. It's just a lot of force and a lot of shear through the joint. So make sure you have the full mobility before you do these movements, especially if you have an injury. And a lot of these injuries will result in some sort of mobility limitation, whether it's because of a contracture that's formed or just pain kind of stops us from being there. Um, and then, you know, Weakness, most athletes, most young individuals aren't going to be necessarily weak, but again, pain can reduce some of that neural firing or neural signaling to that area where some movements that kind of get increased that proprioception might be beneficial. So in your, in, you know, in your situation, if you looked at your external rotation and it just felt weak in the moment, you hammer away on some external rotations and now all of a sudden it feels stronger, like when you retest it. You haven't increased your strength like that, but what you've done is you've increased your awareness of the area. You've increased the neural firing to that area for a short term. Now you do have better stability to that joint to now go do your press. Wow. So I think I answered the question. I'm not sure. I kind of got on a little bit of a tangent there. 100%. You gave me some good insight. So I've noticed speaking of the neural part about it, the left shoulder is way weaker. That's where the chronic pain is. The issues is the impingements are. And I've noticed that the left side is substantially weaker than my right side. And like you said, it's, it's those neurons not firing properly because the area isn't being addressed. Um, yeah, I finally found out, I finally found that out because for years I'm like, why is my left side weaker? Why is my left side weaker? What's going on? I'm doing everything to strengthen it, but I've never really addressed the issues, the underlying issues. And I found that out. So yeah, man, good stuff. And, you know, obviously you covered it. If you have something super specific, not just like a general pain, if you're in upstate New York, you know, go see James, but uh, yeah, you know, yeah. go see a physical therapist. Um, and I want to say, make sure you see a physical therapist, because sometimes you have people try to tell you how to do your job and mm -hmm. prescribe things. Uh, you know, that's, you know, that's a, that's a little bit of a tangent, but I want to hear your thoughts on people prescribing, you know, rehab when they're not a therapist. Yeah. Yeah. I talked with a patient about this today. Um, and they were kind of on the same thought as me, a lot of people. So if you have your car breaks down, right, you go to a mechanic, you don't have a good experience. They don't fix it the way you want to, what have you, you go to a different mechanic. You don't just say that like my car is unfixable or mechanics don't work. Right. The same can't be said for physical therapy. People have one bad experience with a, you know, an uneducated physical therapist or less experienced physical therapist, or even someone who's just not as familiar with that niche, right? Because the human body is pretty complex and they could be very, very talented, like 
I probably wouldn't be able to handle a dancer, right? Or, you know, a gymnast, because that's a very specific niche. I could get them to a certain level. But if you're talking high performance, that's not my specialty. I work with barbell athletes mainly. So, you know, that, that in itself is a tangent. But yeah, so pretty much if people have a bad experience with physical therapy, they say, well, physical therapy doesn't work, or, you know, because all they do is give exercises. Well, the more you look at the research, if, an, if a physical therapist, a chiropractor, a personal trainer with a, you know, whatever they call it, like rehabilitation, exercise, pain specialist, cert, whatever they want to call it, tells you, I have the magic exercise to fix your pain, they're lying to you. Because pain is so complex, we don't ever truly understand it. And we're still learning about it today, right? So we're understanding now that pain is controlled by prior experience, by belief of pain or societal kind of impact, um, by stress, by health across the spectrum with, with like nutrition and sleep and recovery and all these things. So it's so much more complex than any one mechanical thing, right? There probably is some mechanical component. But if you look at the, some of the research now that's coming out, I'll say rotator cuffs, right? They've done studies where they take an MRI, I'll say a hundred people and they look at the image and they ask the people, do you have shoulder pain? Do you not have shoulder pain? There is a very poor correlation between the people that have tears and the people that have pain. Meaning there is a vast number of the population walking around right now with rotator cuff tears without pain. So that tells us if it's purely mechanical, that study would not exist. That would never be found. Right. So there's so many layers to pain. So yeah, you just, it's, it's a very complex field to be in. It's a very hot topic field to be in right now. Um, but yeah, I love it for that reason. Gotcha. And I think a perfect one is I, uh, every time I get on, on Instagram or Facebook, or whatever social media is everyone talking about, Oh, you're so ass. Like that is the only thing in the world that is causing all of your pain across your body is this. And you go buy this 1999 thing with my code and lay on it. You know, it's a little U-shaped foamer. It's going to heal all your pain for your entire life kind of thing. Yeah. 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 And, and a lot of the relief they're getting, like, I'm not discrediting that they probably get some symptom relief from those things, but you also get symptom relief from massage, from acupuncture, from stretching, from foam rolling, from all these other things. And that symptom relief is a neural change, right? You're putting a stimulus into the body. That stimulus feels good. It overrides some of these pain pathways short term. And it tells us, hey, I feel good. So now I'm going to go move. And that movement itself is probably more likely than not the thing that's actually helping them and not that short term change. It's the same as why some physical therapists still rely on modalities at the beginning of the session, right? A hot pack, an ice pack, tens, all those things. We know that those impacts are not long lasting. As soon as they're done, there may be a couple minutes to carry over and that's it. So you're not fixing the patient with that. What you're doing is you're getting buy-in or you're reducing their symptoms short-term so that you can get them moving and doing the things that they otherwise wouldn't be doing. So, so much of physical therapy is finding pain-free movement patterns and just getting people to go through them because then you can almost break this like cycle of pain that they're stuck in. Gotcha. Where, were you, where were you when I had my first few physical therapies, man? I feel like <laughs> I'd be healed right now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, you know, it's like I said, it's everybody means well in our field. Everybody, I, I truly believe a lot of people really, really mean well in a lot of these health fields. Um, but just so much of the research has changed in the last couple of years where if you're not staying up to date on it, it's, it's, 
it's hard to not be kind of stuck in your box, right? If you've been treating for 20 years and you get people better, you know, you're doing it because you think what you're doing is right. But now we're realizing maybe it's right for a different reason than what I'm saying. And, and that's the problem with social media and physical therapy, or, you know, a lot of different things is what you say matters so much more than what you're doing. Because if I tell someone, I'll, I'll bring up the back, right? If I, they have a disc herniation or they have neural pain or low back pain and bending hurts them in that moment. And I tell them you should never bend over that instills fear that bending is bad. But how many times do you bend throughout the day or need to bend throughout the day? Your back is designed to be able to do that. So in that moment, it doesn't feel good, but that doesn't mean that down the road, you can safely and completely do that without symptoms or without re-aggravation because that structure can still handle that. So, but you see a lot of people, Hey, my doctor told me, you know, I shouldn't bend. I shouldn't lift over five pounds. I shouldn't do this and that. And they put all these restrictions on people when really, if you can get them out of that pain cycle and get those tissues calmed down or whatever nerve sensitivity or whatever it is, they'll probably be okay. If it's a non-traumatic type injury. Right. I got a quick question about that. So a lot, um, not a lot. I've seen some people recommend that when people have certain injuries that they just stop working out or lifting completely, wouldn't the lack of movement and just the overall atrophy over time make the injury worse because that those strengthened muscles in those areas are getting weaker, right? You don't have as much stability. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, and the joints like loading to a degree, right? A, A really inflamed arthritic knee, not going to enjoy some really heavy squats in that moment. Can they be trained to like it? Probably. Um, but all of those supportive tissues as well, the cartilage, the meniscus, all those things, they adapt just like the muscle. It's a slower, smaller response, but that's where some of like arthritis for knees or arthritis in general, we're working the joint and we're getting the muscle stronger, but really the benefit of it is you're getting compression into that joint. And those tissues respond almost like a sponge where they bring in this lubricating fluid, which now my joint feels better because I have this fluid in there, not necessarily because it's even stronger. So yeah, movement in general is, is the best medicine in my opinion. And that's coming from how many years have I studied to say, just get up and move, you know? Yeah. Right. I mean, not to mention, uh, you know, even if you have like a tear, the nutrients that need to get to the muscle, they're not going to get, they're going to get there much faster with blood flow. Like you said, appropriate Mm -hmm. blood flow, you know, Mm -hmm. the arthritic knee doesn't need to go do max out heavy squats if it's painful, but Mm -hmm. finding something that's going to increase blood flow to the area to bring these healing nutrients in is going to, you know, accelerate the healing process as long as it's done to a, you know, a proper degree. Um, Absolutely. So you know, talking about that in, you know, you have people you have to train, uh, both as a coach and as a physical therapist, not only for yourself, but some of the people that you, you know, you mentor and coach, how do you recommend either yourself or somebody else getting in ways to get their movement, whichever faucet it may be in the weightlifting and cardio, or even walking when you have such insane schedules. You got to build it into your routine. I mean, that's a hard sell for a lot of people that have been sedentary their whole life. But I mean, even the benefits, the studies come out now, right? An increase, and I I don't know the numbers exactly. I'm going to say a thousand step increase. So a thousand step increase correlated with maybe like a 10% decrease in all cause mortality, meaning just something as simple as walking, you're improving your, your health and you're improving your, you know, reducing your risk of all these other comorbidities and and death, you know, eventually. So it doesn't have to be when someone, 
especially around this time of year, right? You think, oh, I got to get in shape. Well, I'm going to go to the gym seven days a week. I'm going to run three miles a day. I'm going to do, I'm going to cut all carbs and all sugar and all, you know, everything out of my diet. I'm just going to eat like a rabbit. Again, it comes back to sustainability. You're not going to be able to do that for long terms and you haven't built any healthy habits in that process. So now, boom, you, you lose your motivation and you're right back where you started, where I'd rather see someone, I want to get in better shape. All right let's just get off the couch. Let's commit to walking three or four times a week for, you know, 30, 40 minutes, go take your dog for a walk, go walk around the park, find something that you can do and enjoy and then build from that slowly, you know, one factor at a time, get a little bit of cardio or activity and go to the gym two days a week, you know, commit to something that you know you can do because it gives you momentum. I'd always rather someone and this is kind of the general population, the sedentary population, right? Because our athletes, we can expect a little bit more out of them. Just find something that you can do and undershoot probably, because again, if you find success, success builds on success, and then you keep building and keep building. So within four months that I'm just going to go walking for, you know, 30 minutes, three times a day is now I'm doing committed cardio four days a week, if that's your goal. And I'm lifting three days a week and I'm, you know, because of these changes, I feel better about myself. I feel healthier. So I'm making better health choices with the food as well, not eating out as much. Um, and it just, it kind of builds on itself. So there's a big psychological proponent to that. It sounds like. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, absolutely. Yeah. People like succeeding. So if you can find them something that they can be good at in the fitness realm, they're more likely to stick with it rather than just like jamming everything down their throat all at once and then being, you know, resentful of it or, or not enjoying it and hating it. Right. And I see that, you know, same with the bodybuilding stage, people want to compete and they go about things in this like crash diet approach, or, you know, they go in like the old school, I'm going to do, you know, I'm going to do seven days a week of one hour cardio, eat a thousand calories a day and that's it. And I'm going to lose 20 pounds in like five days cool you did it but you hated every moment of it and what are the odds that you're actually going to compete again and what is the damage that you've just done to your body and your hormones and your recovery capabilities so even in in the competitive side of things with my prep clients i try and get them going as slow as possible it's the minimally invasive approach is what i tell people yeah gotcha and uh you know i i like to point out you know you talked about not not to the day but on your page the, uh, whenever you did your prep, you talk about minimally approaching you, uh, whenever you lost weight, you would actually use a weight vest. So you could, you know, maintain that basic calorie expenditure throughout the day. So you weren't having as drastic of changes in your diet. Am I right? Yeah. And there's, there's a whole lot of complex science behind that weight vest prep idea, but yeah, right. You want to eat as much as possible because one, that's you're getting more nutrients and you're getting more vitamins and your satiety levels are better. So you're not getting this kind of like rapid hormonal change of the hunger hormones. Um, testosterone production is probably a little bit higher because your fats are a little bit higher. So you're not seeing all the negative consequences of low food intake all because I artificially increased my weight. So what, you know, TJ is referencing there is I did a weight vest prep where for every five pounds I lost, I added five pounds to the vest. So my artificial weight never fluctuated. So my body felt that I was still moving around 200 pounds of mass because I was, but it wasn't, you know, obviously my, my actual scale weight off the vest was coming down, but there's, yeah, there's the theory is that there's sensors within the joints that can tell how much mass is, you know, compressing down through them. 
as that decreases, as that pressure decreases, it spikes some of these hunger hormones to tell us, hey, we're losing weight, let's eat more. And then there's a cascade of other things that go with that as well. But even from an expenditure point of view too, a 200 pound person walking a mile and a 150 pound person walking a mile, it's the same distance, but that 200 pound person has to burn more calories to move that mass that same distance. So if you can keep your weight artificially higher, it's going to be better for weight loss. So, you know, just on the topic of, you know, weight loss and just general, you know, fitness, you know, you have to deal with your busy schedules and working out, but you do it in the garage and the outdoors of upstate New York. So uh, can you have a little fun rundown of what you're doing up there? Yeah. Uh, besides freezing right now, I went very, very minimal when we were in the process of moving because I was starting a new job. We were, we're renovating the house. So a lot of my free time is going to renovations and things like that. I'm a father. So I'm trying to spend as much time with my wife and my kid as possible. So after prep was over, I kind of shut things down for a little bit, recovered, and then went to as little as a three-day split. And I was hitting full body three days a week, keeping it very minimal, very low volume, high intensity, right? So I was trying to make the most out of every single set that I had because I knew I didn't have the time for a lot of sets. Um, and I've done that successfully. That's actually what I was running when I was playing rugby because we had practice a couple of days a week. We had games and I knew I just couldn't be beating myself up. I obviously wasn't going to the gym on a Sunday after a rugby game. So my days were very limited. So I focused on the basics and I focused on getting really, really good at the basics and getting the most out of every workout. So like I said, right, if I know I've for my chest, I'm hitting four hard sets of bench. I'm going to like really, really push those four sets versus if I know I've got flat bench, incline bench, chest fly, and then dips, right? I know that I have so much volume there where your focus unconsciously is going to waver somewhere throughout there. Nobody can stay locked in for that number of movements. You know, you think you might be, you know, like super dedicated, super hardcore, but I'm going to tell you about your eighth set of chest. You're going to be like, man, like, all right, I'm ready to be done with this. And then maybe you pick up your motivation for the last movement or something like that. So yeah, just trying to be super efficient where that right now I've got it back up because I have a little bit better routine where I'm doing four days a week. I'm still though, two of those days are on the weekend because I know I have a little bit more time on the weekend. So it's kind of adapting your program to fit your schedule at any given time. And uh, what are the temperatures, you know, outside and in the garage that you're working out in with your setup? Yeah, so... The temperatures inside the garage are not much different than the temperatures outside because it's unheated and uninsulated for right now. So last night it was negative two. Um, last week it got down to negative 15 degrees Fahrenheit. So yeah, it's, it's chilly. I mean, I'm, I'm wearing multiple, multiple layers. I'm not resting much because I got to keep the temperature up. I mean, like my, my nose hairs like are freezing. Like as I'm exhaling, I get moisture up into it and I can feel them like crackling. Like it's cold. <laughs> so, <laughs> what are, what is the over under on the, uh, the amount of items of clothing you're wearing to work out? Yeah. So I ran a little poll last night on that. Cause I wanted to find out myself. Uh, last night I was wearing 13 different articles of clothing, right? So I had wow. my, like, I had my underwear on, I had my like leggings on, I had sweatpants over that. I had two pair of socks kind of layered. I had under armor shirt, another shirt, a flannel, and then a hoodie. Like, I mean, it's, you feel pretty bulky, (laughs) 
but it gets the job done. And if, if anyone's followed my, my page, I was actually wearing like the Carhartt overalls the one day. Cause it was just like that cold out. <laughs> yeah. I know you make fun of me when I say it's cold outside because in Delaware, mm-hmm. it got, you know, to the teens and the lowest and a lot of times it did hit the twenties in the winter. And, you know, and now in mm-hmm. South Carolina, it hits 30, like it is now. And I, I'm freezing. That's why I'm in the house recording today rather than the garage. Cause I'm, I'm, I'm freezing at 30 in South Carolina and you're up there at negative 15 with, you know, 14 layers of clothes on. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, it took, you know, it's a change, right? So now I hit an 18 degree day and I'm like, Oh man, it's pretty warm out. I'll just go on a sweatshirt. <laughs> but it's, it's all about adapting. Right. And I'm, I want to do it. You know, I could probably go to some commercial gyms. I have access to a couple, but I'd have to travel to them because I'm pretty rural right now. So I'd rather stay home, be close to the kiddo, be close to the family. That way, you know, I'm not losing that little bit of time I have with them. Right. Gotcha. So, well, that's, that's amazing to show that, you know, like we just talked about before this of, uh, you know, trying to get it in on a busy schedule. You know, if you can build something basic in your garage to fit that schedule, then, you know, it's, it's what gets it in and what's what keeps you strong. Mm-hmm. So yeah. yeah, on the, uh, on the topic of keeping you strong, you know, start winding down a little bit. You know, we talked about a little bit like ashwagandha, pink salt supplements are really only there to supplement that last, you know, five or 10%. Uh, is there anything that you take currently supplement wise? Right now is very, very minimal. I do have a nice little recipe of things that I want to do because my goal for this off season is to get that last 5%, right? So what I will be taking is very different than what I would recommend most people to do. Um, right now it's creatine, you know, and that's, there's, there's no real evidence to say that you need to take that any specific time of day, pre-workout, post-workout, what have you. It's really about just loading that into your system. So consistent intake over time is what you really want. Uh, you don't necessarily need to come on it, come off of it, anything like that. So I take five grams a day, every single day in the morning, just because that's when I like to take it. I'll drink it, you know, with a big glass of water in the morning. So at least I know I'm getting some hydration going there. Um, and then with throughout the day, obviously supplementing with whey protein, because, you know, I getting my protein and I could do it all from solid foods, but I'm moving around a lot. I'm on my feet in the clinic. So I'll drink a shake with like two scoops there as well. And then my pre-workout, I, um, I will be using a formulated product here soon because we actually just got a sponsorship from someone who will be supplying that. Um, but my general ingredients are just, I keep it simple. So I do beta alanine because there's some evidence to show that increased endurance through a long workout. And I like the tingles, um, caffeine because caffeine, right. Um, and then my, the, big other one would be like betaine anhydrous. So that's like a little bit of a pump one with some carnitine and arginine and like your classic pump ingredients. So nothing crazy, nothing over the top. I keep it simple right now. Um, but like I said, I will be looking more into some of the like natural test enhancers, some of the better recovery things for stress and cortisol, like ashwagandha, theanine, things like that. Um, and then some other more like just general health once I kind of get full scale back into things, because again, like I said, those are all for that extra 5%, but for my competitive career, I need that 5%, right? I'm getting, you know, top three, top four. I need something to push me to that, you know, that number one spot. Gotcha. 
So, you know, with that, we've got the, the last question, I think, uh, is one that Jeff had for you. Yeah, dude. Listen, I'm a, I'm a professional fatty over here. So what I'd like to know is what is your favorite cheat meal? I got to know, man. Ooh. Yeah, I feel like that's changed in recent years. So I'll tell you, and this is weird. This is not even going to sound like a cheat meal. I'll say my favorite post-show meal and then my favorite cheat meal, right? Because my favorite post-show meal, that's when like all my taste is screwed up and I just need something crazy, right? <laughs> so I'll get, I think the best one I've had was a five guys, but like the biggest, fattiest, juiciest bacon, cheese, burger, like I need the savory stuff after like when I've deprived myself. So fries, probably throw in a milkshake, but like just a like, double, triple, like as many patties as you can fit on that thing with as much bacon and cheese as possible. And I will slam it. But like, you won't see me eat it. It's gone. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then, but what I'll tell you is when I'm, when I just want to eat like a lot of food, I, my classic go-to is a rotisserie chicken and I'll eat the whole chicken rotisserie chicken with some Mac salad and like a diet Coke as simple and as weird as that sounds like it's, I think I rationalize it as I get to eat an entire chicken, but it's not like it's a lot of protein. Right. So I'm not just wasting it on like a bucket of ice cream and then Mac salad. Like that's like one of the best things ever, especially homemade stuff. So you mean, you I mean, do that with a bucket of potato salad. Yeah. Potato salad, <laughs> Mac salad, whatever dude, it is. <laughs> you've got my mouth watering over here, man. I can't wait to 75 hearts over so I can do this. Ah, yeah, I'm so disgusted yeah. in both of you right now. Macaroni salad, <laughs> potato salad. Like, oh. yeah. any, I any mean, of don't get me wrong, I'll slam a pizza, I'll slam wings, I'll eat anything. I mean, my some of my post show meals have been in excess of 10,000 calories easily. Wow. I, I tracked them the one time. I mean, I eat 7,000 calories in my truck on the three hour drive home from my show. I stopped out of sheets and I got a sub, a breakfast burrito, two donuts, two bags of chips, like a tray of cookies. And I just like pounded it the entire way home and then went out to eat. So I no like my food. Guts. No, no bubble guts. No bubble guts. No, no. You've no got an guts. iron stomach, my friend. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, well, yeah. I, I wasn't as lucky. I think my post show was probably <laughs> up there at 10,000 calories. I went to a Italian restaurant that had a seven course meal for two and I ordered two of them one for my wife and then I had the entire serving of two for myself seven courses of every type of pasta alfredo chicken two different desserts two different appetizers all the way up uh, I had bubble guts for the next two days uh, so I didn't have your type of stomach but those uh, those post-show meals can get extreme and delicious yeah so absolutely well uh thank you everyone for coming in today and talking to us with uh with james stay tuned for episode 12 with james as well where we go over some of the business side of james's world thanks see you guys next week